This is a Federal News Network podcast. The cybersecurity maturity model certification machinery is still months away from showing up as a requirement in defense contracts. But the CMMC accreditation body is gearing up for a voluntary program. It's also looking to recruit more cybersecurity assessors. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Under this voluntary program, Justin, what should companies expect and what do they have to do? Well, they don't have to do anything necessarily, but this voluntary program will encourage companies to pursue CMMC certification before it becomes a requirement in defense contracts. And it could start as soon as later this spring. That's according to Matthew Travis, chief executive of the CMMC accreditation body. He provided some updates on the AB's activities during a town hall on Tuesday evening. And, you know, there's been a lot of churn on CMMC in recent months at the Pentagon. They released the big CMMC 2.0 changes late last year. And just last month, the program office officially moved over to the DOD CIO's office. But we're still waiting for DOD to move forward with a rulemaking that would actually make this program a requirement in contracts. And that could take many months, as long as two years, some folks have said. So the AB is working with DOD to set up this voluntary program to basically say, you're going to have to get this accreditation at some point and cybersecurity is important. Might as well do it now. One of the big things is finalizing a document called the CMMC Assessment Process Guide. And Travis said he hopes that will be finalized and posted publicly within the next two to three weeks. And you said they're hiring assessors. So are they ready to do these assessments at this point? Yeah, they've been building up slowly what they're calling the CMMC ecosystem uh, over the past several years. You, you hear that ecosystem term thrown around a lot, and that basically refers to a whole range of consultants, licensed training providers, and assessors who are actually going to carry out this program. Travis gave, gave an update on where they're at and really building out those different areas They've seen actually 126% growth in the number of licensed training providers over the last year. That's They're up to 61, and these are the organizations that actually train the assessors, so they're pretty important early on in the process. They've also seen a big growth in the number of registered practitioners who are going to provide advice and consulting and recommendations to clients who are needing to get a CMMC certification. They're, they're actually going to be accredited to do that. But on the assessment front, you have CMMC third-party assessor organizations, and there are just six so far who have gotten through that process, but there are more than 200 waiting approval. And then there are the actual assessors who are hired by these organizations. They have about 759 trained at this point, either at the entry-level position, which is allowed to help out with these assessments, or the actual assessors who supervise things. And Travis said those assessors are the most important part of scaling up this ecosystem. We're encouraged by these numbers, but we've got to do more. You're going to be seeing uh, promotional campaigns from us here this spring to really encourage uh, Americans to think about becoming assessors. Great way to enter the cybersecurity field. And when we want to get the word out that the ecosystem, it's open for business for those individuals who either want to make a career change or, or add this to their professional repertoire and credential because it's a very flexible and I think can be very rewarding profession in light of light of work to be in. And that's Matthew Travis, the chief executive of the CMMC accreditation body. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And Justin, will DOD be kind of encouraging companies to get this voluntary accreditation? In the meantime, it's like playing in a Hartford theater before you go to the grand stage. 
Right. Well, DOD has said that they want to find ways to incentivize companies to get to CMMC early, as they put it, before it becomes a requirement. And after the CMMC 2.0 changes came out last year, they said that they were going to look at a couple different things, whether it's, you know, giving companies a higher profit margin for having better cybersecurity or using cybersecurity as an actual evaluation criteria in contracts. But DOD hasn't actually come out with any details beyond just their thinking about those things. They have continued to stress that there are already cybersecurity requirements in every defense contract. They're just not enforced, but they are very similar to the CMMC standards. So they've continued to beat that drum. And I think you're going to not see DOD saying, well, don't go get an assessment. They're certainly going to be happy if if contractors decide to do that. And this is taking on some importance or urgency as the Russian campaign goes on around the world, including the hacking of defense contractors. And is that kind of giving impetus to all this going on with CMMC? Yeah, it certainly underscores why DOD is doing this. It's not just to for the sake of grading contractors on cybersecurity. You know, just last week, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, along with the NSA and the FBI, released this joint advisory saying Russian state-sponsored actors have targeted clear defense contractors for the last two years from January 2020 through February 2022. And they've been able to access their networks, obtain sensitive data about defense and intelligence programs. And that's unclassified data, actually, proprietary information and export controlled information. But the type of unclassified information that CMMC standards are meant to protect these actors have actually been able to maintain persistent access to defense contractor networks, in some cases at least six months, according to this advisory. The FBI, NSA, and CISA noted that they're really just using some basic techniques, stealing simple passwords, taking advantage of unpatched systems. And that's what this, this accreditation program is all about getting after, is raising the level of cyber standards. I guess you can imagine Russia stealing plans for systems from the United States and having them built in China which has the manufacturing capacity Russia lacks. There's been some speculation about uh, coordination between those two countries, and certainly China has been the one that's actually been called out more as the actor who's hacking in defense con- into defense contractor networks over the last five years. So there are uh, many adversaries that are interested in doing this. You know, it's it's traditional espionage in many ways, but I think in the Defense Department's view, it's become way too easy with internet-connected devices and and all these different things that are now able to be stolen via the internet. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent, 
And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit, and then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on 
what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my my mind to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second. Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.